here. But it's just airplanes, so it's not, it's it's, not really no this is This is the best seat now. It's, it's got a runway in the front yard. or... <laughs> <laughs> 5870 something I think. Yeah, very nearly the yeah, very nearly the first day of spring when it's usually 2 degrees out in the morning. Really? It was like in the <laughs> it was single digits this morning. Yes. It wasn't 2, it was 9, but still. It was single digits here, but you have to switch to the Celsius no, scale. No, it was like it was below 10 here this morning. It was just insane. Uh, below 10. Yes. Uh, Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit. You know, if you blow 10 in most jurisdictions, you'll go to jail. <laughs> um, this guy hit a fish. Did you see this? He hit a fish. It wasn't a bird strike. It was a flew fish in, strike. Flew into a fish. Yeah. Got to be a... I, it's happened before. No. How, when's it happened before? Well, it's, it's happened... There, there was a... I want to say a LaGuardia or Kennedy. It's been a few years. Um... A bird of prey, yeah, um, flying across a runway with a departing jet. The bird said, mm, "I need to loosen my load here a little bit." Yeah, well, <laughs> and dropped its fish, and it smacked uh, uh, a windshield or something. I think I don't know. Maybe that's one of those urban legends, but that kind of thing has, I believe, happened. Well, before. yeah, I mean, it's totally plausible, right? You know, it's like you know, when the, the bird's flying along with its catch of the day, and uh, and uh, you know, and it says. <laughs> uh, uh, it, says, it gets wor- it gets worse than that, guys. Whatever whatever passes in bird for holy crap, there's an airplane coming right at me, and it just kind of like, you know, it gets it gets worse than that. What? How? How? Okay. How? What? Okay. Let me let me get you this link real quick. Here. All right. Take a look at that. Now, we've seen this happen here on the little Arkansas River that runs through my neighborhood in yeah. Wichita. Yeah. Invasive species called Asian carp. Yeah, I'm, well, yeah, okay. Sometimes they're introduced, but okay. Well, they're considered invasive here because they don't play well with others. Uh, they're really causing problems on the Great Lakes. And these things can jump seven, eight feet in the air and have been known to hit people in the face. I've seen it reported on the uh-huh. Weather Channel. A local yeah. wildlife reporter yeah. Yeah. took a boat trip along the, the Arkansas here last year. And was surprised at how many times they had carp jump over them, hit them, land in the boat. Uh, he said, you know, if only they were good for something other than swinging it. And I've heard of them jumping out of the water near water okay. uh, runways near the water. And I guess. Sometimes sitting in the airplane. But how low are you flying to? By the way, there ought to be a law, okay? First of all, uh-huh. if, if, if you're going to start a video and it's going to start with a commercial, an ad, which happens these days, I guess that's just the way of the world now, all right? It, they shouldn't be running the ad and then showing us the message that says this video you're trying to watch is currently unavailable. All right, right. They they should recognize that before I, they show me the ad. And yeah, I anyways. couldn't get I couldn't get the the video that Dave sent. Yeah, me neither. That's what I was trying I to watch here, David. What's yeah. in this Asian carp on the attack? Exclamation! It was point. a Weather Channel spot. Yeah. From last year's tax day. Yeah. Uh, and, boy, there's another one. I could send you one from YouTube that I imagine you will be able to get. Well, you never know. But so <laughs> I can imagine – I can okay, so I can imagine a fish being able to jump pretty far out of the water in, like, boat fish terms, all right? But how, how low do you have to be flying in order to hit one of these things with an airplane? If you're close enough to the water, you don't have to be flying at all. 
Yeah, you know, it's, it's like there's a there's a bumper and, and sticker here a, that says like if a, you can num- see this fish, you're too low. <laughs> <There's a number laughs> of that's right. That's right. Um, All right, hang on. He sent us a another number link. Of runways yeah, in Florida. Yeah, this this one loads, but it's long. There are a number of runways in Florida. That have water right alongside them, like within okay, ten feet. I see, I see all the jumping fish. That's okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. So this is not about. Okay. So these Asian carp and this video that I'm about to watch. There's a guy talking right now. Is just showing us fish jumping. It's not showing airplanes hitting fish jumping. Now right? this is what they do, though. Okay. Yeah. And if you look at how far they jump in this, there's, there's one that's jumped into the boat. Um, yeah. I yeah. That. Well, you know, if you read if you read like old maritime novels, they're full of examples of you know where the the flying fish will jump onto the. Uh, oh, well, yeah, look at those things jumping pretty high. There right? was that movie. There was that movie. What was it called? Um, oh yeah, Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's Thank right. God that wasn't an airplane. That <laughs> that, that, that was that high. was a fish jumping in a boat. That's yeah, right. Is. Jeb, I think we need a bigger airplane. We're going to need a bigger airplane or a bigger <laughs> monitor or something. Yeah. I, I don't know. But, I don't uh, know. So, anyway, this was... This so was, Tampa, this guy this hit was, a fish. Yeah, this was like local for me. Yeah. Um, um, it was an, um, a NOAA uh, airplane, uh, apparently. It was a Gulfstream 4, I think. Uh, yeah, Gulfstream 4. Yeah. Take it on the roll for takeoff at McDill, which is up near Tampa, and uh, heard a loud thud... Uh, aborted the takeoff wisely, assuming they had hit the, hit a bird. Um, they they saw a bird uh, with something in its claws fly in front of the aircraft during the takeoff roll. Um, but they found they didn't find the bird. They found a fish. Right. They found a nine inch long sheep's head. Um, now, if you scroll on down in this link, there's a picture of a sheep's head. Okay. Okay. You see that? I haven't looked there That's yet. A Hang on, I'm going. Fish. It's a good sized fish. Yeah, I think I dated her. <laughs> <laughs> okay, they see now we've crossed the line. I don't. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and I was thinking it reminded me of a math instructor from high school. No, 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 no. You guys are going to get us in trouble. Don't talk like this. Um, I was going to say. No, I'm not going to say what I was going to say. I'm going to say this instead. Welcome, folks, to Uncontrolled Airspace, the General <laughs> Aviation Podcast. Uh, my name is Jack Hodgson. I'm coming to you from UCAP World Headquarters in, uh, I even know how to describe Epping, New Hampshire, to this afternoon. It's like almost the first day of spring. It was like nine degrees out this morning. It's just like, and I was Jack chatting. was really in the mood for fish sticks until we started this talk. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I was chatting with someone today about the weather, and we were speculating on whether this is more than just, you know, kind of an interesting weather thing, but it actually signs of the uh, arriving apocalypse. I mean, it's just just nuts. This weather—it's just like and and Jeb, you apparently had some sort of thing. What was we David a, asking you about? We, had, we yeah. had a we had a front move through here yesterday. <clears throat> In the way it moved, it kind of moved mostly um, north northeast as opposed to east or west. Mm-hmm. So we were treated to this cold front for most of the day. Uh, there was a tornado watch out for my locality. Um, until 11 o'clock last night, and the worst of the weather that I saw was noonish. Yeah. So that's, that's a long time to have a tornado watch. That, by the way, is one of my good friends here, Jeb Burnside, coming to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. And, where fish uh, jump on airplanes. Where fish jump fish, on airplanes. Yeah, that's and, right. And, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, and birds are scared. And birds are scared. Well, you know what? This would actually, you know, the whole the whole concept of of of, of uh, a flying bird losing its load, so to speak, um, <laughs> um, could explain snakes on a plane too. 
Have you ever? I have seen. You ever seen a like a hawk s- carrying away a snake? I have. Sure. Yeah. Sure. See, so same sure. thing could happen. You could end up with like a snake on your on your uh, on your windscreen. Yeah, that, that would <laughs> freak me out. That would suck. That would freak me out. That hey, and that suck. other voice out there is my other good friend, Dave Higdon, talking to us from uh, Wichita, Kansas. Hi, David. How are you doing? Doing wonderful. Doing wonderful. It's a lovely day here today. Yeah. Almost uh, almost ultralight flying weather. And uh, I was thinking about running down to a little place south of here and uh, see if they're flying their powered parachutes. Although, I think with the wind forecast for this evening, that's probably a trip I can save by making a phone call. Yeah, I, it's, I don't know. You know, maybe it's warmer down there than it is up here. It's not quite, you know, ultralight. We're pushing 70 here today. See, oh, that's just, that's just not right. I mean, but, it is right. It's totally right. That's what it's supposed to be. Winds are in the 20s and building and are supposed to be getting into the 30s with overnight gusts as high as 40. Now, I don't know about some guys, but when the wind gets higher than my full power cruise speed, I tend to want to sit on the ground. Well, okay, there is that. Yeah, there is that. Yeah, so it's going backward the whole time. It's just no damn fun. Yeah, off-field ending of the week here. Um, <laughs> we have a, a a Cirrus driver, a Cirrus pilot, who uh, pulled the popped the chute um, after having some uh, some uh, what engine problems, I guess. And uh, the thing that makes this particularly interesting, not that any time you pop the chute on an airplane isn't going to be interesting, but this time he was, uh, uh, although from the U.S., he was flying over Mexico and apparently set down in, in, a, in a somewhat scary place. Jeb, you put this on the list. Do you know anything more about this story? What, what happened? I, I don't know anything more about it than what is here. And what does um, it say? As you basically pointed out, Cirrus driver, apparently solo, um, trying to make his way back uh, from... So what he says here is Rocky Point, Mexico, to Nogales, Arizona. Um, disappeared from radar about 60 miles south of the uh, U.S.-Mexican border. Um, filled in the gaps, da-da-da-da-da. The pilot um, uh, who survived um, gets on the same board and, and posts uh, what had happened. Um, basically, he was... He was um, I uh, couldn't tell if he was IFR or not. He was talking with uh, one of the Mexican air traffic control facilities. Um, still had coordinates and whatnot. But then at the once he got on the ground, um, local authorities didn't want to come out to do anything about it because he was in apparently had, had plopped down into uh, drug lord territory. Yeah. And you, you, apparently you don't go marching in there with uh, a couple of Jeeps without, you know, making a few phone calls or, right. or have, having superior firepower. Um, and isn't that what they did? Didn't, like, military go in and get in? Apparently, like so, apparently that's exactly what happened. Um, I think he was there overnight. Uh, and then uh, uh, some military uh, went in and got him out. And uh, that was more or less the end of the drama. I don't know whatever happened to the airplane, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I remember when I read the story, there were a couple of follow-up messages. I think the actual guy was posting in the exactly. comments he did, of the story. Exactly, he did, yeah. His name is Ivan Gutierrez. Yeah. Gutierrez. Didn't he say something like they left the plane behind? Or, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, you know, sp- spending the night, as scary as the, as the, you know, the drug lord thing is out there, um, overnight, there's some. You speak about talking about snakes on a plane. All right, um, yeah. <laughs> spend the night out there um, in the in the desert is, uh, 
you know. You stay in the cockpit, lock the door. I guess so, huh? And get out your snake bite kit. I guess so. Huh? Yeah, exactly. so. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's uh, some crazy stuff. Yeah, yeah. There was another, it's not on the list, there was another serious uh, incident I saw um, just recently. The uh, One of my favorite uh, airports in the world is the uh, the Alton Bay Ice Runway that I talk about all the time. Right. Oh yeah. Um, they apparently had to close it this year. Um, I don't know if they closed it permanently, you know, for the rest of the season or just temporarily. They had two landing incidents there. Really? Um, nobody was hurt badly. Bang- I'm not even sure if they were bang- hardly banged up, but uh, apparently they uh, cl- uh, wingtips caught snowbanks um, on <laughs> rollout, slide out, skid out, whatever. Um, one of those aircraft being a a, a Cirrus. Um, Huh. And uh, apparently they had two of these within a very short time, like a week or two or something like that. And as a result, they decided to close the airport. And I hadn't seen another story as to whether they reopened it. But uh, huh. Interesting. Oh, you know, the right time of day, white snow banks on Frozen Lake, there's not going to be a lot of depth in what you see. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, particularly the middle hour, hour, 90 minutes of the day when you know, the sun's at its highest. If it lines up right with it, there'll be no shadow at all. Yeah, yeah. And I, one time I was one time when I was there and watching aircraft land, or maybe I'm not sure if I saw this myself or whether I saw it on a video, but I, I saw this somehow, some way. Um, aircraft touched down and um, and was heading right for one of the snowbanks, and I thought I could just I had this vision in my mind of it being a frozen icy snowbank, and it was going to take out the landing gear. Um, and but the airplane just kind of boomed right through it. Apparently, it was much softer snow than I had feared. And huh. uh, but uh, yeah, so we had two incidents up here with that. And one of those was a Cirrus. So that's kind of too bad. <clears throat> well, there's um, using the magic of the Google. Um, yeah, there's pictures. Um, one is a um, an SR22. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's actually down lower on the list that would yeah weren't necessarily yeah. going to get to it. But uh, yeah, and then there's a. Uh, I can't tell what exactly what it is. It looked like a champ or a cub. Uh, maybe it doesn't ex- the story maybe, describe it as maybe an experimental? Ex- well, sure. well, maybe maybe it is, but it's hard to tell what type it is. Yeah, from so, these images. So that's kind of unfortunate, but yeah, it is. It's um, for everybody. For everybody, you know, but flip side of which is everybody apparently walked away. Yeah, so. apparently there were no, I don't uh, even hardly injuries. Apparently, so uh, yeah, that's good. That's good. What else is going on here? We've got. Uh, Another one, Jeb. You were busy putting lots of things on the list this week. Oh, uh, you just you just you just pulled them up. Uh, Austin, yeah, we, Texas. Uh, yeah, yeah. What happened? We had, had a VFR pilot. Yeah, get caught on top, and uh, this was it says Sunday, so this was like March second. Um, pilot marked Matt Cartwright uh, launched from New Orleans, headed for uh, Austin. Uh, weather caved in on him. Uh, he's in a PA twenty eight. Cherokee, obviously. Controllers decided to try to talk him through a landing at Austin Bergstrom International. Mm-hmm. Uh, held traffic for 30 minutes, according to this. Um, had the pilot Cartwright descend from about 3,500 feet on an ILS. Um, broke out 300 feet above the runway and landed. Congratulations. Nice. Yeah. To, every, to everyone involved. How much time did the pilot have? How do we know doesn't, how experienced the pilot was? Doesn't say in this uh, in this story. Um, he's apparently not instrument rated, or the obvi- or obviously he was either not instrument rated, or the aircraft wasn't equipped for instruments. Right. Yeah. But typically, a, a Cherokee will have a six pack of instruments. Right. So, you know, whatever that means. Yeah. Probably just not instrument rated. That that would have been my guess, but I, I yeah. don't I you know I don't, obviously don't know, but. Uh, 
Yeah. Yet another example. The controllers are awesome. I mean, I oh, just yeah. you know, oh, wow. I you know, yeah, yeah, occasionally was... you come across one who kind of annoys you a little bit, but on the whole, the controllers are just terrific. And uh, well, there was some solid thinking in how they did this with this guy too. Uh, reading up on it a little bit. Uh, you know, they, they got him lined up so that he's basically doing a straight, steady, constant rate descent uh, to where the runway should appear if he breaks out high enough. And, you know, it kept him from a situation where he had to do any serious maneuvering once the clouds enveloped him mm-hmm. or any maneuvering at all, because that's usually where this, this scenario falls apart. Mm-hmm. You know, the guys are usually okay while they're on top in VMC. It's when they start moving through the cloud layer trying to find the, the ground that things go haywire. They drift off a little bit. They overcorrect, a little spatial disorientation, not being used to really, depending on the attitude indicator maybe. Uh, yeah, congratulations to everybody here because these things have such a habit of coming out so much worse. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So uh, later in this episode, we're going to demonstrate that you don't need to know very much about a subject to uh, talk at great length about it. But uh, um, before we get to that one, um, just this afternoon, there was a a, a tragedy apparently in Seattle. Uh, Have you seen the stories about this? I I heard about it. A helicopter trying to take off. A news helicopter went down in in the city. In the city, like, like in the same block or something as the Space Needle? Something like that, in that that vicinity. And... uh, um, uh, apparently, both people on the helicopter died, and one person on the ground uh, suffered extreme burns. It sounds mm-hmm. pretty pretty nasty. Yeah, um, it sounds pretty gruesome. So, but it's a news helicopter. I, you know, there was a period a while ago when we had a whole rash of of, uh, of uh, medical helicopter um, accidents. Has, has that has that you know kind of I don't know how to characterize it exactly. You know, slowed down, been corrected, uh, reduced. Have you, we don't hear as much of that anymore. Has, have they kind of made some changes there to, to, to mitigate there, that kind of thing? There have been a series of recommendations. Um, I'm not sure if there are any new regulations, but uh, typically when something like this happens, you'll see industry come up with some, some best practices or recommended standards, and those, that'll be embraced by the insurance company, insurance insurers, I should say. And uh, if you want to ensure your EMS operation, you'll have to comply with those those best practices. Frequently, it's easier, it takes less time to do it that way than to, say, go through a formal rulemaking at the FAA and change the rules. To be honest with you, though, I don't know what has happened, but I do agree with you that there seem to have been fewer EMS accidents recently. Yeah. It could be... There was some discussion at one point about... Um, night vision goggles being part of the problem uh, in some of these uh, accidents over, say, the last 10 years or so involving EMS. Really? Crack. I hadn't yeah. heard that. Yeah. yeah. So um, I think between some some newer technology, some better training, uh, and some, some guidelines on how and when to use uh, uh, night vision goggles, I think a lot of that's kind of gone away. Um, but I agree with you ultimately that there have been improvements in uh, EMS rotor craft safety. I just can't quantify yeah, them no. or put it, put it in a Good to know, hear. time frame. Yeah. Good to hear. Well, the two in the uh, Seattle helicopter, one of them was a retired news photographer who'd won 13 Emmys when he was still working mm. and was uh, working uh, his career as something we're totally unfamiliar with as a freelancer. 
<laughs> yeah, right. I know. Huh? Um, I'm going to hear about this from somebody I know. Well, you know, I first heard about this um, from a, a tweet from uh, um, one of our friends at uh, GA News, and uh, they're huh. located up there in the in. I don't know if they're in Seattle or, but they're up there in in the north. Tacoma, yeah, yeah. GA News is in Tacoma. So uh, obviously, it's it's close to home for them, and. Uh, um, you know. Oh, yeah, this is a local story for uh, Ben Scalaire and his oh, kid. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, truly tragic. Uh, he took off from a rooftop, so he had a long way to the ground when yeah. things malfunctioned. Yeah. Before we take a break, though, um, so uh, is this the same guy, David Kundal, um, who's finding uh, he's, he's back trying to dig up the Spitfires in. Uh, they keep referring to it as Burma, but it's not called Burma anymore. But uh, Myanmar, Myanmar, and uh, yeah. so we had a lot of fun with this story. Of, I don't know what a year ago, a, a while ago, um, where he was actually putting shovels to ground and trying to dig these things up, and uh, and uh, you know failed is a strong word, but he did not find them and had to stop. And apparently he's back. He's going to try and dig again. He's got some more information or new or new permits or I don't know what, but. Uh, you know, he apparently still has hopes that he's going to find one or more of these airplanes. Well, and he's changed his techniques a little bit, too, which mollified some of the local officials that were worried about the damage as Dig was doing when he was doing this a year ago. Yeah, see, this is the part from this story is the first time I heard. I always had this image, this vision of him digging in a grassy field, but apparently not. Apparently, this, this, this spot where he thinks these things are buried is like covered in thick concrete right now. There, there, there are places where you can find entire civilizations under new civilizations, like Atlanta. See, that's you know you're going to get an argument from some people there, but uh, anyway, well, underground Atlanta. I know. Oh, underground, underground Atlanta. All right. Okay. okay. See, and I'm there sorry. Are, there are a couple of towns here in Kansas that had these entire underground cities connected by tunnels. Yeah. Uh, to cater to the customers of businesses that maybe weren't welcome at street level or were ah, just looking for okay. cheaper space. Uh, there's a lot of places that, you, you know, you, you're going to go through a lot of concrete and, and a lot of dirt to find something that was on the surface just a, 50 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, uh, this wasn't a greenfield dig, and it was not exactly the most uh, – archaeologically friendly <laughs> territory either. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they talked about him trying to... He apparently now has a uh, a special, quote-unquote, special hydraulic hammer that will be used to smash through a layer of concrete near a perimeter fence at the Yangon, Y-A-N-G-O-N, Yangon International Airport near Rangoon. So... Uh, well, we're rooting for you, Mr. Kundal. We uh, that's just like this would be just the coolest thing for you to find some of these airplanes. Um, but uh, you you broke my heart before, so I don't know what I'm thinking about <laughs> what I'm thinking about it this time. Anyways, so uh, listen, we're gonna, we're going to take a break and we're going to come back and talk about something that's uh, on a lot of people's minds right now. And uh, I'm not sure if we have anything more to add to it. But you know, which never stopped us from talking about something before. So here we go. The Voices of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as a cross between parody and satire. Their utterances do not necessarily reflect either reality or sanity. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like information or truth is obviously very wrong. You should always consult your own intelligence, remember your experience, and ignore the ever-humorous pile of blowing snow that you find here. But everyone knows that. 
So the uh, not only the internet but the major media. I mean, just just everything is a buzz right now um, with conversation about uh, this. Normally, I would characterize this as a tragedy, and chances are it is a tragedy. I mean, I guess it is one way or the other. But uh, um, so uh, about a week and a half, almost two weeks ago, um, it's a, uh, it's, I think we're going into the tenth. Ten days, day. yeah, tenth uh, day right now, yeah. A, uh, a Malaysian Airlines triple uh, seven, Boeing seven seven seven, took off from uh, Kuala Lumpur, uh, bound for Beijing, and uh, twenty seven hundred miles. Flew for a while, um, and then was not heard from again. And everybody knows that. <laughs> I, I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast knows this story and has theories and has discussed it. And uh, um, I, you know, I was talking to a. Uh, I mean, I'm hearing from our listeners on the net constantly they're saying oh i can't wait to hear you guys talk about this i can't hear you know i can't wait to hear what you're going to say about this and i i just don't even know exactly what there is to say about this you know um someone urged me said said well just stick to the facts all right just stick to what we know that's that's exactly the problem yeah and yeah and so you know so the airplane took off it went traveled for a while and then it disappeared what else do we know for sure what 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 are the facts here first well, where do you start? We know it's a triple seven. We know how many passengers and crew were aboard. Okay. Uh, we know it um, had a fairly routine flight for about thirty minutes out of Kuala Lumpur towards Beijing. It went feet wet uh, while still in its initial climb. Uh, got to um, a point somewhere between uh, Malaysia and Vietnam over the South China Sea at flight level 350, uh, and there was a handoff uh, from Malaysian air traffic control to uh, Vietnamese air traffic control. Mm -hmm. The aircraft never checked in with Vietnam's ATC system. So this is, I'm sorry, is this like Air France where they are out of touch for any period of time, or were they supposed to be in touch the whole time? They were supposed to be in touch the whole time. Okay. you know, five, five, ten seconds, it's a frequency change. Right, it's just any, a regular frequency yeah, change. Anybody who's flown from under, uh, talking to ATC uh, from one facility to the next, mm-hmm. contact such and such a facility on such and such a frequency. Have a good evening. Yeah. I'm sorry, Jeff, okay. I interrupted you, so continue. Okay. So the, the crew, someone in the crew um, acknowledged that transmission, said, all right, thanks, good night, something like that. And that was the last communication from the airplane. At some point, according to the latest information, which I have to, I'll get back to in just a minute, at some point prior to that radio communication, prior to that handoff being trying to be implemented, the aircraft's ACAR system was turned off, was <laughs> powered down, disabled somehow. Now, briefly, what's the ACAR system? ACAR system is aircraft uh, communications and address system or something like that. It's a, basically a text system. Um, used f- t- for uh, airliners and tra- heavy transport oh, okay. to, to communicate with ATC, to communicate with company. Ba- basically, it's a it's a high zoot email system, Got a text er, SMS it. system, okay. for lack of a better yep. word. Now, the latest information out of Malaysia says that that A cars was turned off at or about that time, perhaps prior to the. Um, um, a sign-off from the aircraft, the, the handoff to, to Vietnam. Nevertheless, um, 30 minutes later, it's a car system which, at, which works on VHF, not on SATCOM, as some people believe, 
um, because Malaysia Aircraft didn't buy the subscription for their A-car system on that aircraft to use the SATCOM service. Really? Is that serious? Yes. Are you joking? Yeah. Or no? not, I'm incredibly serious. Okay, that's, go ahead. That's the latest information. All right, go ahead. The airplane then disappeared from, um, never, never materialized on Vietnamese radar, at least secondary radar, um, was as a prime, the transponder turned off also. The uh, area military radar apparently observed a primary target, i.e. one without, a trans, without, without an operating transponder, uh, turn and cross southern Thailand, northern Malaysia on the Malaysian Peninsula into um, a different body of water. I forget the name of it. Malacca uh, Strait. Gulf of, well, that or Gulf of Thailand, depending on uh, um, the, uh, the longitude. Okay? Mm -hmm. um, and then, according to a Reuters story uh, that was published a few days later, which has not been refuted by Malaysian authorities, okay. some additional uh, primary target plots were discovered where the airplane made kind of a zigzag that could be interpreted as an attempt to evade radar. Okay, That's pretty much the last, uh, and I, I have to put the word official in quotes, uh, the last real sighting of the aircraft uh, for several hours um, at, and this is all local Malaysian times, the aircraft took off about 035, shortly after midnight local time. The last ACARS transmission was at 107. At 121, they were handed off to Vietnam, and the ACARS should have checked in over VHF at approximately 135, 137. It never did, and, and, and hasn't been heard from since, basically. The aircraft, again, primary radar tracks, they think is the missing aircraft, mm -hmm. um, started transiting west uh, across uh, the Gulf of Thailand. And west, so keep in mind, just for west. anybody who's not, west is basically the wrong direction. The I mean, wrong, almost wrong, completely the opposite way right. it was supposed to be going. The, the, the route to Beijing from Kuala Lumpur is approximately north-northeast. Right. Okay. So here they are, you know, an hour and a half or so after takeoff. There, there's a primary target over the Gulf of Thailand that's plotted that could be the accident aircraft, the incident aircraft. Then, several hours later, at 8.11 a.m. Malaysian time, i.e. Uh, seven and a half hours after takeoff, mm -hmm. an Inmarsat um, satellite over the Indian Ocean records an attempted handshake with onboard equipment, the SATCOM equipment on board the aircraft. Okay. Are they and and they're able to identify that this potential handshake was from this particular aircraft or basically yeah. based on, on equipment signatures, like an okay. MEI like an MEI number in your cell phone no, yeah, or something okay. like that. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's coded. It's, All right. It's, That's so, very interesting. Okay, go and, ahead. Then then in Marsat, using what tools they have, are able to plot the a a, a, a line circle of position, an arc of position. For that satellite ping, mm -hmm. that, that that attempted handshake, and it just sort of, kind of, uh, uh, amazingly, plots out uh, from very close to the last known position to um, 
arcs extending maybe 2,000 nautical miles from that last known position, one to the south into the Indian Ocean and below the equator, the other uh, north, and these are arcs again, mm-hmm. uh, north into uh, western China and the stands and into northern Europe. Mm-hmm. That is supposedly all we know right now. Right. But the problem is, and, and Dave, I'll let you catch up here in just a second. The problem is um, the Malaysians uh, are completely out of their element here. They don't have a clue what's going on. They don't have a clue how to respond. They don't have the resources or the experience to really handle something like this. Unfortunately or fortunately, depending on your viewpoint, they're the ones in charge. Under IKEA rules and, and national conventions and treaties, yeah. the, the aircraft of, of registry in a situation like this, until the airframe is found, the, air, the, the country of registry, uh, is the one responsible for the search. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. Uh, as opposed to say, you know, the NTSB rolling in and say, we're going to take this over. They could only do that with uh, Malaysia's request, or at M- Malaysia's request, which, in my view, should have been forthcoming on day two. Yeah. Having, having said that, mm-hmm. the problem is <clears throat> that whether it's cultural, whether it's, it's political, whether it's you know, language differences, all of those and, and more, the information coming out of Malaysia on this um, event uh, have been contradictory. They have been um, lacking specifics, lacking detail. Uh, in my mind, we still don't know how much fuel was on board this airplane. It's not, it, it, it's not fully known to me how much fuel, even fuel was on board. So there are so many unanswered questions. And then you even have to suspect some of the basic data that I just went through. Mm-hmm. Be- because... It's subject to interpretation, um, and um, the, so much that has been released in the past on this has either been recanted right. or, or modified right. that no one really knows what the hell's going on. Yeah, David, anything? To add? We're still talking what, what little we know as a sort of quote. I'm making finger quotes facts here. David, anything well, you want one, to add? One of the, Jeb's, Jeb's on the money on, on, on this, and one of the issues that's made this really difficult is the number of different state jurisdictions that have had an eyeball technologically on this airplane and not shared that information in a timely manner. For example, uh, the Royal Thailand Air Force is the ones that were tracking this puppy for hours. Apparently. apparently. uh, Yeah, apparently. Well, they confessed to it this morning. Did they? Yeah. And they gave some plots to them, and they're basically only primary targets. Uh, and the plots showed the aircraft continuing on a what would be about a 210 to 220 heading uh, for a while after the turn. Southwest. Southwest. Uh, back up a step here, but, David. What, what do you mean by... Lose, David, but, David, back up a step yeah. here. What do you mean by primary targets? 
primary target is what you get when a radar is powerful enough to paint the skin of an airplane and get a return from the skin, Okay, which right. is all we had in original radar. Yeah. Okay, so Thailand was, was, was apparently watching it, you think, they say. Right. And without a transponder, they're getting no squawk on altitude, no ID code, no direct, you know, the computer's putting together a little plot of direction. So how do they uh, even think that, this, that they're looking at this aircraft? They don't know for sure. Okay. They, don't, they have no idea on that, but they had this unidentified track that they didn't tell the Malaysians about for days. Okay. Uh, we've got authorities along both of those red lines that have radar coverage for those areas that haven't been real forthcoming yet. And basically, you know, it's working through their bureaucracies to get any information they may have, which may only exist at a local level at the radar site. Mm -hmm. It may have been overridden. And it may have been overridden by now. Exactly. Uh, Oh, so they only save these things for a while. If they don't know to look for them. Yep. Yeah. If if they're not, and, you know, there were a lot of people asleep at the switch who didn't exactly notice these things in a timely fashion when the the airplane first kind of stopped uh, transmitting a transponder response. Nobody apparently jumped up and down and went, Whiskey Tango, Foxtrot, where's our airplane? Yeah. Yeah. For some period of time here, uh, an hour or better, of which case all kinds of mischief can happen, uh, a friend of mine who's a 777 pilot pointed out to me that with all this maneuvering that have been reported by different sources, from the satellite to the tie radar, that it's completely conceivable in his mind that the airplane may have landed Within 500, 600 miles of Kuala Lumpur. Yeah, yeah. That it did all that stuff. To, but nobody knows. And right. here's what's driving the news people and the investigators equally crazy. Right. There's nothing to know yet. What, what we if, don't have a corpus delecti. Yeah, right. We have no black boxes, no black boxes, no airframe, no engines, no resolution, and no idea, really, of which direction is the right direction to look. Right. So as, as I heard a, an old friend of mine from the U.K. tell one of the networks a couple of nights ago, he said, it's worse than trying to find a needle in a haystack because you don't know which haystack to look in. Exactly, Sorry. exactly. What, what, if anything, have we heard um, about the maintenance history of this particular airframe? Nothing, because there really hasn't been any, anything <laughs> to report. Yeah, um, okay. The, there is early talk about an airworthiness directive that, that the FAA had issued against that particular type for a specific satellite antenna. Right, that's the one I heard, yeah. That uh, was not installed on the event aircraft. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm sorry, when you say it's not installed, that device was installed or that the, AD was not complied with? That um, device, that component was not installed I see. Uh, okay. on the aircraft. A different satellite antenna was installed, not the one affected by the airworthiness directive. Okay. Let me, let me go back to something Dave pointed out Yeah. Uh, relative to Thailand's apparently having set on um, radar data. Uh, first of all, they didn't really know to turn it in, I think, is, is perhaps one aspect of the delay. But the other aspect here... <sighs> Southeast and South Central Asia is a very conflicted territory. And if I were Thailand and talking about, you know, a wealthy neighbor to my south, 
I wouldn't necessarily want to be forthcoming with information on what my military radar did and did not see. Yeah, right. And, and what I think, it could and cannot see. Right. And I think that holds true for a lot of nations and a lot of militaries in that general area. Thank you, you're right. Yeah, now having said all of that, if you look at the, the I.O. and you look at uh, the arc up to the north and you look at the arc to the south, um, the arc to the north uh, could <laughs> use it. Um, but if you look at the Indian Ocean and all that kind of thing, one of the countries uh, at the very t- top of the, of the Indian Ocean is Bangladesh. Above it is, is Nepal and then you get to China. Uh, yeah, I don't know a whole lot about that region, but I would guess that Bangladesh probably doesn't have the best air traffic control or military radar in the area. Now, I don't that know would the, be kind of surprising. It would be a surprise. And if you just motored on to the north, you'd cross into to Bangladeshi airspace, then you'd cross into Nepal, then you'd cross into China. China, I'm sure, has some pretty solid... Uh, military radar, um, but China has some other roles here. And uh, for example, 150 some odd, I think 154 passengers on the aircraft were Chinese. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and early in the um, search for this, like day two or day three, China published, someone in China, either connected with the military or the government, published some photographs of the ocean um, east of Vietnam. Right. Which, with arrows, possible debris, looked like it could have been a planned form of a a 777. Could have been the tail, could have been the the center section with the wings. Hard to tell. Very, you know, da-da-da-da-da, gave the location and kind of stepped back. And um, then they haven't really said a whole lot since then. But mm-hmm. there were, the majority of the passengers on that flight were Chinese. Right. The images that China released um, were basically in the exact opposite direction of what we know now. Right. Yeah. So <sighs> those, were, so, I, you're, you're, those you're, were surveillance satellite uh, images. Yeah. And I think the one of the navies wound up checking out that area uh-huh. and finding nothing to corroborate uh, uh, the, the possibility that that was part of the missing aircraft. Uh, there was another instance where there was a 10-mile-long oil slick reported uh, in an area and at a point where it's unlikely the aircraft would have left an oil slick anywhere that size, that close to when it right. went down. Uh, God, what else? Let's see. Uh, it was interesting uh, over the last 72 hours to watch the uh, uh, cable networks. Hmm. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stereotype in a way I don't generally like here. But they are all at a loss of what to do when they have nothing to say. Yeah. Hasn't, uh, hasn't CNN been reduced to one guy said that it might have been a supernatural event? Yes. I saw a headline along those well, lines. Well, yeah. actually, CNN's paraded through a pretty good... Uh, a, a panel of serious experts in one area or another, but it's always been to bounce off them the latest breathless right. inquiry. Right. Now, my favorite erupted about four days ago when the uh, Malaysian authority finally searched the captain's house 
Mm-hmm. Right. Now, and okay. we're shocked and stunned and I know. amazed to find a flight simulator there. I know, huh? But, uh, now, I, I do want to talk a little bit about some of the speculation that's been floating around. But before we do that, uh, the last aspect of, of quote-unquote fact that we might talk about is, have there's, has there been anything released about these pilots' skills or state of mind? Well, that's where I was headed here with the simulator thing. That yeah. jazzed all kind of speculation that he might have built that to practice some kind of untoward act, as if that wasn't where he went to work on a day-to-day basis, is a cockpit of that airplane. Uh, he was an airplane junkie, it turns out, mm-hmm. he was an aviation junkie. They've checked his uh, medical, nothing. They've a, checked a suspicious his attitude, class in and of nothing. itself. But, uh, They've checked yes, yes. the simulator's programming itself to see if he might have had a dress rehearsal scenario in there that he'd been practicing. Uh-huh. It's been strikeout after strikeout after strikeout. Right. It just turns out that the guy was an airplane chunky. Uh, the co-pilot was on the brink of getting married. Uh, he's not a high candidate for murder-suicide. Uh, we were largely watching the world flail about because we have something that we haven't really had since Amelia Earhart. Right. Right. A total yeah. disappearance. Yeah. So okay, Air France we knew was down. Right. Pretty quickly. Within a within a couple of days we knew it was down because we'd found confirming wreckage. Right. Uh took them two years to find the bottom wreckage. Almost two years. But they found it, and they came up with some scenarios based on what survived, which was pretty much everything on the flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorder. Uh, You know, this is where you say, God bless digital flight deck recorders. we got nothing here. Yeah. By the way, so... At least the bloody thing flew off into the South Indian Ocean and was transported to another universe. I seem to remember in the case of the Air France 447 um, uh, incident, there was... Wasn't there some sort of engine or aircraft telemetry that went by satellite? That was called ACARS. Oh, that's the ACARS. That's the ACARS. Okay, all right. They paid for the satellite subscription. Uh Okay. Basically, that's exactly the right answer. That's exactly the right answer. Um, We had all this data um, that was actually leaked uh, somehow, but it was it was a good leak, as it were. In the case of Air France four four seven. In the case of Air France four four seven that showed a cascading series of failures and warning messages being issued by the airplane systems. And working those backwards, um, it was apparent that something causing um, the computers, the flight uh, director and all that to switch off, to kick off, disengage, uh, had occurred. The question was, what happened? Why? What happened to cause the autopilot to kick off? And what did the crew do in response? And we've, we've learned the answers to those questions by finding the wreckage, getting the uh, CVR and the flight uh, data recorder. Right. right. So um, we're not going to know. Well, let's 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 back up. There's two basic theories here. Three basic theories. One is suicide, which I think we can. I think we've already discounted. Um, two is um, some kind of catastrophic mechanical that. Uh, disabled communications, disabled transponder, disabled um, the, the flight deck, but allowed the airplane to continue to fly. Okay, not, not totally out of the possibility, realm of possibility. Well, but. No. 
the holes in the cheese have to line. There's got to be a lot of holes in the cheese. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And it's got to line up perfectly. Okay. And it's never, ever, ever happened before on a 777. Right. And, you know, there's one thing I was reminded of, uh, kind of mentally trying to telepathy plan in a guy's brain. When all else fails on an airplane that big, that far away from either pole of the earth, you still have a compass. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I know. Well, I mean, you still have a compass. Now, it may not, in the middle of the night, out over water, let you steer precisely enough to intersect a waypoint or even find a major city without seeing it. But it will keep you from going southwest when northeast is where you wanted to go. Right. And, and it, even at night, uh, this was a moonless night. And it was good weather. Uh, even at night, you, you can spot land masses. Yeah, and, and cities. Yeah, and, on, a, and, on, on a moonlit on a moonlit night, especially it, if you're a twenty eighteen thousand hour captain, uh, comfortable in the airplane, been flying the airplane without an incident for years, knew the territory, et cetera, et cetera. Now there's there's a couple of theories out there that have gotten a lot of a lot of visibility. One of them involves um, um, someone taking control of the aircraft and shadowing uh, a similar aircraft, the Singapore Airlines aircraft, right. to the, uh, the northwest um, with the idea that sneaking in and shattering this airplane will keep them hidden from, from ATC. Um, if you buy into that, then you also have to sort of buy into what is, is widely reported, although unconfirmed, as an altitude so a series, actually, of altitude excursions. Yeah. One of them uh, posits a climb to flight level 450, which is above the aircraft service ceiling. Oh, okay. That'd uh, mean it won't get there. It's that'd mean it won't get there. Up, not approved I mean, up there. Yeah, not, not approved, um, which means the whoever was doing this would basically have to zoom climb the aircraft past its service ceiling. Uh, about 3,000 feet past its service ceiling uh, in a fairly, I'd say, a mid-weight to heavyweight condition, which mm -hmm. is, and weight is one of the issues here that, that affect uh, cruising altitude for this class of aircraft. Um, and we'll, get, we'll come back to weight in a minute. Right. Um, there's only really one good reason for that to occur, and that is to dump the cabin and um, Anybody who's not on oxygen right. either passes out or dies. Yeah. So I mean, that's yeah. we're, you know. Well, and on top of that, it even makes the pressurization system ineffective for maintaining this right. design cabin altitude. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So you don't even have to dump necessarily to have everybody unconscious. Yeah. Then, if, uh, then if you're gonna if you're gonna be tailgating, uh, shadowing another aircraft, mainly you're going to be doing that. The cabin's still going to be dumped at that point in time because yeah. you want to try to ensure no noises from the back end of the airplane. So you're going to be doing this at night, hand-flying a, a 777 um, on oxygen in very, very in a very, very cold atmosphere. Um, <laughs> for, for how long? Yeah. I, I, just, I just don't get that. Yeah. And, and, and uh, you know, if someone was able to do that, you know, dude, you know, I am not worthy. Yeah. Uh, Any other? Uh, I'm sorry. But, uh, there's a there, there's really very little that can be said factually about what happened to the airplane, 
But as long as this mystery continues, it's going to be harder and harder to keep people away from the theory that this was a hijacking of the grandest scale. And they basically, somebody wanted to steal an airplane. And may have succeeded. It may have succeeded. The way that, to me, the, the holes in the cheese line up is that someone, um, in fact, took control of the airplane. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. For, for, an un, for an unknown reason. Um, and is either, you know, if it's a suicide, it's to the south. If it's a hijacking, it's to the north on those two tracks that in Marsat plotted. Um, nothing else really makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. So well, the the ability to stow away on a wide body aircraft like that uh, at an airport where its reputation, not to sully the Malaysians, but it's not exactly one of the world's top destinations when you want to go study airport security, perimeter <laughs> uh, yeah. security being the the operative word, because there have been instances of people. In some of these uh, uh, less sophisticated countries, uh, aviation-wise, uh, having trouble keeping people from stowing away in wheel wells and in avionics bays and all this. And we all remember what great aviation fun the movie Snakes on a Plane was. <laughs> I mean, it showed proof positive that if you can fly a simulator, you can land a wide-body jet. Right. Uh, <laughs> but... A friend of mine asked when that movie was out in first run. He goes, now, there really isn't all that space you can walk around down below the main deck on an airplane, right? I mean, that's all filled with cargo, luggage. You know what? No, that's, as a matter of fact, that's where a lot of the catering gets stowed on a 747. It gets cooked downstairs and delivered by a dumb waiter. So what you're saying, Not insulting any waiters. It's not hard to wind up in an avionics locker down below the flight deck. You're already on the right side of the armored door yeah. if you come up through that hatch. And yeah. there's a similar hatch like that on the trip. Anyways, so, well, let's not stray too far in our, yeah, into the, our own the, speculation. My, here my understanding on the trip seven is the uh, the access hatch to the uh, um, engineering and equipment bay is uh, outside the cockpit. Um, is it outside on that particular seven on on those seven on those triple sevens, right. yeah. Uh, there's no access to the E&E bay from the cockpit. Because there has been talk about the, 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 the pilots became incapacitated and no one from the back of the airplane was able to break through the door. Uh-huh. Is the door truly that impregnable, you think? <sighs> no. If they set the deadbolt, it's going to take some tools. Yeah. Um, three or four big guys with a beverage cart will eventually get through that door. Yeah. You know, a lot of people think that, that what, what has protected us from, from further hijackings a la 9-11 mm-hmm. isn't so much the airport security. It's, first of all, the door, and second of all, the willingness of the passengers to fight back. And so if, if someone had time to break through the door and wasn't going to be disturbed by the passengers, in fact, had help from the passengers, you'd think they'd be able to get back into that cockpit you know, if one or more of the pilots was incapacitated. So anyways, enough speculation. Um, you know, we're probably going to talk about this again on the podcast before it all is said and done. Well, at, uh, at some point it will turn up. Exactly, exactly. I went out on a limb. I don't, I don't think it was much of a limb um, for the Air France 447 uh, tragedy. 
and said they will find the airplane. I'll say the same thing here. They will if if it hasn't been hijacked and cut up and you know da 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 destroyed or or there, someone's not saving it for a surprise down the road. Uh, if in fact it crashed, it will be found. Yeah. And and finally, you know, do, do either of you care to uh, in twenty five words or less say what you think happened? Do you have a guess? Do you have? I think somebody. Hijacked the airplane and landed it somewhere. Yeah, Jeb. I think someone hijacked the airplane and landed it somewhere. Yeah. I uh, I find it hard to believe it crashed. That's for sure. I I just think that it would not have hidden so successfully if it went down yeah. almost anywhere. So I guess I agree with you guys. Okay, shout outs. What? <laughs> how do you follow that? Right? How do you follow that? Uh, well, there is one shout out I want to talk about real quickly here, and that is this may well well no that's not true. We'll be have a couple more episodes get in the in the in the uh, pipeline. Um, this episode is going to get rushed out. We're going to freak out our listeners once again by having uh, skipping a couple episode numbers because we want this one to get on the net pretty quickly. But I have a couple more in the can that will come out um, later this week. Um, but this is the last one we'll record before we head down to Lakeland for Sun and Fun. And uh, uh, I'm really, really looking forward to Sun and Fun this year because uh, winter up here just doesn't seem to want to end. Um, and so uh, we're going to be down there. Uh, uh, UCAP, Uncontrolled Airspace, will be at Sun and Fun again doing uh, our normal fun stuff. We're going to be recording two full-blown episodes while we are there at the uh, at the flying. You mean we have to do this twice? Twice, and then some. Uh, we're going to be recording on uh, on Tuesday, I believe it is, Tuesday afternoon, right after the air show. Uh, we're recording a full-blown episode. And then on Sunday morning, I believe it's at 11 a.m., we're going to be recording a full-blown episode. Both of those episodes will be recorded from um, uh, we'll be hosted by our good, good friends at Sun and Fun Radio. Uh, and uh, we'll be out on their deck, and I'm going to talk about their deck in just a second because that's well, a cool story. But, but, you know, it's, it, what kind of deck is this? Yeah, I know, huh? So for years, uh, well, I'm sorry, let me finish the thought here. So uh, two episodes, Tuesday afternoon and Sunday morning from the Sun and Fun Radio deck. Please come on over and say hi and and uh, and uh, uh, maybe even you know listen live because you get to hear the things that David says that I usually cut out. And uh, that'll be fun. And then throughout the week, all week long, uh, we'll be doing UCAP dailies, uh, uh, shorter uh, 10, 15-minute episodes uh, about the sort of atmosphere and, and feeling and, and uh, other fun things that are going on throughout the week at uh, Sun and Fun uh, at, at Lakeland Airport. So uh, that's uh, that's uh, UCAP at uh, Sun and Fun. No meetup that we know of, um, but we're going to be hanging out at the at the radio station. So come and say hi to us there. The deck is kind of cool. Um, congratulations to our, our pal Dave Shelbetter and to uh, all of his volunteer crew. The deck at the radio station building has always been a relatively uh, shallow, if you will, not very. It's a whole width of the building, but not very deep. And so the word is crowded. Yeah, and so we put all the people that were hanging out on uh, at the radio station on that deck, and it got real crowded real fast. This year, Dave Shalbetter went out and did some fundraising and uh, managed to get the materials to replace that deck with a deck that's like four times the size just on the front half and huge on the back half. He's basically got a, a deck that wraps around three sides of this building now. Um, he uh, uh, collared or invited, seduced uh, a whole bunch of volunteers, and they've been spending every weekend there now for about six weeks. I guess it seems like six weeks. Maybe it's more like three, but a long time. Um, uh, tearing down the old deck and uh, and fabricating the new deck, and we've seen some pictures, and it looks like a really 
like it was always been a fun place to hang out but now it's like you know it's it's spacious it's, it looks really really nice so we're gonna have a lot of space for uh, setting up the, the the tables and microphones and and Shelbetter even tells me that, that we may he may even let the you know sort of guests if you will uh, audience uh, up on the deck and uh, apparently he's found some chairs or something that'll be cool to have because people have been hanging out down on the sidewalk and on that on that ramp but now they can apparently get up a lot closer and that'll be fun so um, congratulations to uh, Dave Shelbetter and his entire crew for this work um, for all the work they do at Sun and Fun Radio because it's a big undertaking undertaking but uh, the deck is very very cool looking forward to it now what kind of deck is this like a card deck yeah exactly yeah right is this a, a is like a carrier deck yeah they it's have a, like it's they a, have like you know cvn 62 painted on the on the front of it or something no, like no, that no, it's a magic the gathering a dungeons and dragons deck oh. yeah yeah so um dave shall better ask me to say that uh, uh the radio station um is in need of cash from time to time for various supplies and equipment and whatnot. And so they do fundraising, uh, both in the form of donations and also radio sponsorships. Um, and if you are uh, interested in sponsoring, uh, as we do here at Uncontrolled Airspace, uh, uh, being a sponsor of the radio station, there are still sponsorships available. And uh, if you're interested in uh, participating that way, you or your business or whatever, um, you can get more information about that at the uh, at the year-round Sun and Fun Radio website, which is... Uh, chatsfromthedeck.com I believe chats from the deck is all one word and that's the place where you can go all year long and listen to uh, the archive of uh, Sun and Fun Radio and, uh, and of course contributing something to help Dave defray his expenses probably will guarantee you a waffle a waffle exactly right exactly right so anyways that's an awful lot about uh, about our visit to Sun and Fun but we're pretty excited about it do you guys want to add anything about Sun and Fun uh, this year we're going to be doing our preview episode from the grounds there on that Tuesday afternoon so uh, that's when we'll be kind of sharing with you our thoughts on on what's exciting and what's going to be happen because that'll be day one of, of the fly-in and well if, if you find yourself on the grounds at Lakeland during sun and fun you should if in the neighborhood take an opportunity to congratulate any sun and fun radio volunteer you meet congratulate them on 20 years of sun and fun radio this is our 20th anniversary. Yeah, pretty cool. That's, that's we, we had radio 20 years ago? Actually, even had Telegraph. Man, I'm getting so old. Hey, listen, a couple, couple more years, it'll be UCAP's 20th anniversary. Almost. We're approaching 10. Can you believe it? <laughs> Anyways. You could have uh, gone, gone all day without saying that. Other shout-outs. Anything else? Oh, yeah, I got one. Uh, uh, Jeb. Uh, Brian Arthur. A loyal, uh, uh, frequent UCAP listener um, sought me out, buttonholed me um, this last week at the uh, Aircraft Electronics Association uh, trade show that I attended. He attended. And uh, I just wanted to say, hi, Brian. Uh, Thanks for your time. It was a pleasure to get to know you. And uh, I'm sure we'll see you again. Thank you. Very cool. Very cool. David, anything? Yeah, just a quick one. Uh, Old friends of ours... uh, Mine in particular, Mark and Gary at PS Engineering. Uh, they picked up their second associate member of the year award from the Aircraft Electronics Association at their convention last week. Uh, we know the guys from PS Engineering from their outstanding audio panels, really innovative stuff. Uh, copied and imitated, almost ripped off by others. Their stuff so good. So congratulations to uh, Mark Shire and and, uh, and Gary and, uh, and all the folks there. That's uh, for a little bitty shop that only does really one thing. 
That's quite an accomplishment. It, it really is, and they do make a good product. I happen to have one of their examples in my airplane. Well, you always were a smart guy. That's right. Okay. Are we done? Wow. Huh? <laughs> that yeah. was getting really, you know, I know, huh? Hey, uh, one of those voices Get is... mushy. <laughs> Dave Higdon. Dave is a uh, aviation photographer and aviation journalist and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, what you been working on? Uh, anything uh, you've been writing or shooting or whatever that you would tell us about? have a piece uh, pending in World Aircraft Sales about uh, various programs uh, in play that lets you turn a piston airplane into a turboprop airplane and gain all sorts of benefits in speed, altitude, uh, altitude and speed. Cool. And wh- what publication is that in? World Aircraft Sales. You can find them at avbuyer.com. You can also find them in pretty much any FBO you walk into in the country. Uh, They get around pretty well. Yeah, yeah. And so where else can people find you on the Internet? Uh, Twitter, I'm Real Higdon. That's probably enough. Find me on AEA.net for avionics news. Yeah. And? I forget about the rest. That's okay. Uh, that other voice out there is Jeb Burnside. Jeb's a freelance aviation writer and editor, serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. What have you been working on, Jeb? You just got back from someplace. I just got back from the AEA convention, yeah. I was mm-hmm. uh, uh, basically out all last week um, um, uh, traveling around doing stuff. Uh, before I did that, however, I got the uh, April uh, issue of Aviation Safety in the can. Mm-hmm. Uh, got a uh, couple of really good articles in there this month. One on uh, propellers, another one on um, uh, getting in the simulator and getting your instrument rating recurrent, uh, some things like that. And then another one um, on uh, why you're a test pilot and what you should be doing uh, because of that uh, right after some maintenance is done on your airplane. Cool. Sounds interesting. Yeah, yeah that yeah. and more yeah. in the April issue of uh, Aviation Safety, as I like to say. Very cool. And where can yeah. people find you out about this and other things you've been doing on the other th- Internet? Um, other things I've been doing on the Internet probably would not uh, be found easily. <laughs> okay. AviationSafetyMagazine.com. Let's start with AviationSafetyMagazine.com. Yeah. All, all, all one word. Uh, JEBurnside.com. Uh, somewhere out there, I'm on the Twitter machine and in Facebook. Very good, very good. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Uh, you got, please check out my Around the Field series of uh, Kindle eBooks uh, at Amazon.com/author/Jack-Hodgson. Uh, these are collections of my past uh, columns from the uh, AirVenture Today newspaper um, at uh, at AirVenture every summer, and I'm gradually collecting them all up and republishing them there. And you can read them as uh, Kindle eBooks. Um, so that's collect the whole set. Collect the whole set eventually. That's what I'm counting on. Um, on Twitter, you can check me out at uh, twitter.com/jackhodgson, um, or you you can sign up for my email newsletter for information about all the different projects I'm working on. Um, more information about that at aroundthefield.net. And uh, you can also learn way more than you really want to know about me at uh, my personal website, jackhodgson.com. 
Hey, big thanks to Jeff Ward for his help with the, help with the show notes and in the forums. Uh, big thanks to Mike Morgan, to Royce Earl, to Jim Goldman, and to the many other listeners who have created the UCAP disclaimer clips. I actually heard from a listener. We haven't gotten a new disclaimer clip in a long time, all right? And that we've got plenty, so we're doing good. But uh, I heard from a listener just recently who says he's gonna gonna record a new disclaimer clip. So so cool. we, we we can look forward to that. That'll be kind of cool. Uh, don't forget to check out the rest of the UCAP website. You can chat with us directly and with many other of your fellow listeners at the Uncontrolled Airspace forums. You can also see who's doing what on the New Ratings webpage of fame and much, much more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. We're also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big, big help. So, David, you were going to say something? Best way to live long and get really old like these other two guys. Spend time flying because, as you know, time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye-bye. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. I think I resemble that remark.